St. Basil says that painters with their pictures achieve for the cause of religion that which preachers accomplish with their eloquence. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host, Chloe Langer. I'm joined remotely by my guest tonight, Joe Heschmeyer, author of Shameless Popery. He works over at Holy Family School of Faith here in the Kansas City, Kansas Diocese. And he's a bit under the weather, and I do not want strep throat, so we are doing this via um, just a phone call, which is strange for us because usually we're side by side. But welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thanks for keeping your germs on that side of the screen. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this is the quarantine episode. Hopefully, the one and only quarantine episode. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yes, health comes soon. But until then, <laughs> just one of us gets to be sick. Um, today's podcast, we're going to be talking about beauty um, and what beauty means for us as Catholics, how we can evangelize through beauty. But before we start that conversation, so let's take some time real quick just to define terms. So Joe, if you were just to give us a quick definition of beauty um, for the sake of context, what, how would you define it? So beauty, Aquinas defines it, he says, beautiful things are those which, when seen, please. And that's helpful, you know? Yeah. But it's a little unclear, has kind of refined that. He's a Thomistic professor, a former professor of mine, uh, Dr. Lawrence Feingold. And he says, that which is pleasing to the mind's eye. So to really understand what we mean by this or why we're even worrying about, like all of us have a sense of what we mean by beautiful. When we're talking about beauty, we're talking about something distinct from, but related to the true and the good. So you'll often hear these three things together, truth, goodness, and beauty, and they're related to each other. But truth is appealing to the intellect and goodness is appealing to the will. So you desire what is good uh, on the level of the will you want to know what is true. And beauty has a correspondence between those two. There's a goodness to it, uh, but there's also a truth to it. So it's kind of the, the middle point between truth and goodness, or the overlap between them. Can you talk a little bit more about, you mentioned uh, Professor Feingold, can you talk a little bit more about how, what the role that beauty plays in his just conversion to Catholicism? He has this beautiful story that I've heard from a couple people, and just, it'd be really neat for just context on beauty to hear the role of beauty in his journey to God. Yeah, so he grew up um, nominally Jewish, not really much of a religious practice at all. They'd sometimes go to Unitarian Church, and his wife also grew up Jewish. Um, I think they went to conservative uh, synagogue. Uh, from time to time, but neither of them seemed to have much in the way of religiosity, but art really played this incredible role in their conversion. So I want to give this as a little bit of a background, both to show why Feingold is someone who I'm <laughs> throwing out there as like, here's someone who we should take seriously on the question of beauty, but also because I think it'll kind of lay out the general message of this, which is that beauty has this very powerful evangelical effect, or it ought to. And in Feingold's case, he is both a philosopher and an artist. So he, on one of his books, the front cover is a beautiful sculpture. It's actually a sculpture he did of his wife. And so just an incredibly talented person in many different fields. Well, he wasn't always um, a philosopher of Thomas Aquinas. He wasn't always a Catholic. He wasn't always interested in, in more classical forms of art. Uh, you know, he's starting out and he's a young, uh, irreligious art student. So he has this incredible encounter with a professor at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, Professor Norris K. Smith. And the professor puts two pictures on the screen. 
the first one, and we'll have these in the show notes for anyone interested to go into to the website. The first one is a Rembrandt self-portrait. And if you've ever seen any, Rembrandt has done several self-portraits or did several self-portraits throughout his life. And they're beautiful. And they're obviously the work of someone who has a keen sense of the human spirit, of the soul, of the intellect. Because there's always like a light around the face and a real nobility to the way that he would draw his portraits. And so that was kind of the more classical example. Now, Rembrandt is, is actually kind of late in, in this stage yeah. in terms of uh, when he comes in. He's not like, you know, mid medieval or anything like that. But it's part of that same tradition. Well, then the second one that he puts up is called Woman Number Six by de Kooning. And then this one looks like it was made by a collaboration between a kindergartner and a demon. Like it's a, <laughs> a horrific, uh, distorted really troubling mm -hmm. uh, kind of picture. And so it might have a message, but the message that it has is a really disturbing message. And so the professor, uh, Norris K. Smith, asked, well, which of these would you rather have in your room to contemplate on your deathbed? And that is an incredible wow. kind of prompt. And so, of course, Feingold gets it. He gets that there's this kind of dehumanization that has happened in modern art. And he even comes to eventually realize what I think was Smith's point all along, that the Christian message is that man is made in the image of God. And so a culture that takes that seriously, its art takes a human form very seriously. It takes a human person very seriously, doesn't treat humans lightly and as you know commodities and everything else. But when that sense is lost, you get these real distortions of the human person. And you see them in one form in a lot of this modern art. Frankly, you see it in another form in things like pornography, but right. it's the exploitation right. and the tearing down, the deconstruction of the beauty of the human person. And so Feingold was able to, even as an atheist, even as like someone who wasn't, or at least agnostic, someone who wasn't religious, he was able to say, oh, like when we stopped believing in God, we stopped making this beautiful art. And you see it not just in the, the span of Europe or America, you see it sometimes in the life of a painter themselves. So Picasso, for example, as a young man was a brilliant artist. Now, those who are only familiar with Picasso's adult work might find that hard to believe. But when he was a teenager, uh, he did a portrait, I believe, of a girl receiving her first communion. Oh, wow. And then he had a, a portrait of uh, someone on their deathbed, or someone sick, rather, fittingly, given this is a quarantine episode. <laughs> and they're being visited by, uh, if memory serves, a doctor and a nun. Huh. And the doctor is kind of cold, and the nun is uh, kind of giving solace. So it's showing that faith and reason both have this role to play in kind of the suffering of life. It's a brilliant insight by a teenager, painted beautifully. And then you compare it to his later stuff, where it's trying to imitate primitive art, and it ends up just looking again, distorted and even demonic. And you just think, what happened? Well, what happened was the loss of faith. Yeah. This reminds me of um, a book that I read, The Aesthetics of Architecture by Sir Roger Scruton, and he writes about how the modern city, by observing today's architecture, you can see 
the souls of the architects and he has this quote where he says the new city is a city in which glazed facades mirror each other's emptiness across streets that die in their shadows and he says the facelessness of such a city is also a kind of godlessness and so it's it's incredible to see kind of the state of where our souls are at in terms of a relationship with God based on our art. Our art is, art is powerful. And I think this comes up in a, a really healthy way whenever there's a debate over a new church. For example, Father Andrew Strubble, one of my closest friends, and the priest will be doing my wedding, is uh, in the process, in the very beginning process of building a new church. And whenever that happens, there are obviously a, a wide variety of opinions. And I think that's a good thing. But it can be very clear which people are just saying, well, what's the, <laughs> what's the biggest structure we can get for the least amount of money? Right. Versus the people who are saying, what really is going to glorify God here? Art actually gives glory to God. It's something that a disturbing number of Catholics and Americans more broadly, of course, have just totally lost. And yeah. I think that's a, a very indicative sort of moment when that comes up and people just don't get why would you want a beautiful church? Well, then these same people will take expensive vacations to go to Europe to go look at beautiful old buildings. Yeah, yeah. Do you just see them over there? <laughs> a little bit of a You're disconnect. You're so close. You're mm -hmm. not far from the kingdom of God. Um, when we're talking about today's culture and how beauty is really something that's kind of been hijacked as a term, when you talk about the concept of beauty, is beauty something that's subjective or is beauty objective? Thomas DeVay has this quote where he says, why do we enjoy and even thrill in the beauty, whereas mere animals give not the least hint of appreciating a rose bloom or a waltz. Yeah, there's. I think there's an old Chinese saying that if you point your finger at the moon to a cat, it'll just lick your finger. I might be <laughs> butchering that. But it's the idea that like animals can't enjoy wonder, can't enjoy beauty. It's one of the clearest signals that there's something unique about humans and that this uniqueness about humans is tied up in wonder and in beauty and in awe just as much as it is in rationality. There's a connection, of course, between the two. Remember, if beauty is that which appeals to the mind's eye, an animal lacking a true intellect, you know, an animal isn't contemplating, you know, should I eat another bowl of cat food? I'm, I'm gaining a little bit of weight. I'm not sure this is good for my diet. What would my doctor say? Like, that's not going on. It's, right. it's all instinctual. Mm -hmm. And so in that life, something beautiful could be before it. But like when your cat sees birds in flight, it isn't like, wow, what majesty. It's like, <laughs> I can eat that. Let's break apart this phrase. Again, talking about things that are hijacked, things that are stereotypes about beauty that aren't really true. The phrase that you hear a lot when you think about beauty is, well, isn't beauty in the eye of the beholder? So when it comes to that, with beauty being something that is objectively good, something that we can encounter with our mind, with our intellect, how does that phrase line up with that definition of beauty that we shared in the beginning of this episode? Well, it's false in a, in a real sense, but there is something true about it. So let's break that apart. Um, you know, we just mentioned animals can't appreciate beauty, but that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the beautiful or something wrong with the animal. So too, we can have a diminished capacity for beauty, just like we can have a diminished capacity for truth or goodness, depending on how we're raised or depending on how we've lived our lives. So there's a principle, a Thomistic principle, St. Thomas Aquinas, that everything is received according to the mode of the receiver. First, let me give you a couple examples. Let's say you've just brushed your teeth and you go and you drink a glass of orange juice and it tastes terrible. The problem there isn't in the orange juice. 
the problem is that you aren't able to receive the orange juice in the way that it ought to be received because you've just brushed your teeth. So you got all that weird, whatever, toothpaste <laughs> residue or I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you know this experience. If you're sick, sometimes food will just taste terrible. So if you see something and you think it's not beautiful, or maybe it's not beautiful, or maybe the problem is on your end. In the same way that, you know, like, if you're having a problem with the internet, maybe it's a problem with your router, maybe it's a problem with your computer, maybe you're not pushing a button right, you know, like, you might be the problem. It might be on the receiving end rather than on the distributing end. So it is with beauty. There is an objectivity to true beauty. But just like not everyone finds the same things true, <laughs> Yeah. Even though objective truth exists, not everyone finds the same things beautiful, even though objective beauty exists. Again, another quote from Thomas Dubay. This, these are all quotes from his book, The Evidential Power of Beauty, which is a fantastic read. If, if this is something that's piquing your interest and you want to dig deeper, this book did a lot of the research for this podcast for me. Um, he has this quote where he says, We vary greatly in our capacity to perceive what lies before our eyes. Much like 30 youngsters gathered for their first instruction in the art of reading, there are 30 degrees of reading readiness in the classroom. And the same is true for 300 people listening to their first symphony concert or 3,000 people reading a challenging book. Um, and that's the end of the quote. But yeah, again, there's an objectivity to beauty. It's like giving, if you give Shakespeare to a kindergartner, they're not going to appreciate the language and the artistic flair of which Shakespeare writes, but it's not because Shakespeare is an awful writer. It's just because that kindergartner probably isn't ready to appreciate that, the, the objective beauty of that writing. Right. Or the objective truth of a thing. If you give a right. science book to that kindergartner, he's also not going to be like, oh, I see. You know, if you, for that matter, if you just give a book to them, they may not be able to read it or understand or grasp it. But that's just a problem with them as a receiver. And so they have to be sort of led along and trained in that. I should add one more thing while we're on this subject. Another reason why we sometimes, because here we're talking more about why we often don't recognize beautiful things as beautiful. But there's another issue in which we can sometimes recognize ugly things as beautiful. And I think there are a few reasons for that. So beautiful things, especially things like music, can appeal directly to the soul. And now this is something that when you first hear, you're like, what? Music appeals directly to the soul without the use of my rational intellect, <laughs> considering its truth or falsity? Well, yeah. Like, this is why we have phrases like mood music. Mm -hmm. This is why you have, like, a workout soundtrack when you want your body to get pumped up. You're not, like, listening to someone saying, you should have more adrenaline. Right. You're just playing music that gives you more adrenaline. That's how powerful music is. And so you can set all sorts of different moods with different music. And so frequently, if you're desiring things that aren't good, then the things that are going to appear good to your mind's eye aren't going to be authentic goods because you've, you've got such a twisted conception of goodness that it can also sometimes twist your conception of beauty. The other way is that we can often mistake the skillful for the beautiful. Now, there's something truly impressive about doing something skillfully, something very difficult. But that doesn't mean it's good. It doesn't mean it's, you know, beautiful. Like if you uh, figured out how to do Beethoven's Fifth Symphony through belching, that's <laughs> genuinely an impressive feat of human achievement. But no one is like, gorgeous. That was <laughs> awe-inspiring art. So, uh, you know, you're using... Uh, this distinctly human function, like only a human could do something that ridiculous. An animal would never dream of this. 
And so there is something truly human about it. <laughs> and so in that sense, we can find some kind of beauty or something near beauty, but the thing itself isn't beautiful. And so there are entire uh, areas of art in which I think that's the case. I think, for example, heavy metal. Heavy metal is much more technically difficult than most pop music. A lot of pop music uses four chords. Yep. But say what you will about pop music, and there are many, many, many problems with it, it's still more objectively beautiful than heavy metal. I mean, yeah. I'm speaking very broadly here. Obviously, right. counter examples could be brought up of particularly ugly pop songs. But as a general rule, my point is just something can be brilliant in its technical difficulty and still not be beautiful. Our human brain can perceive something that is objectively ugly as beautiful based on what we perceive that um, subjectively to be. So in, in some ways, we can retrain our brains. The gift of seeing beauty can grow and change. Few of us can claim to see the total reality of beauty and see that flawlessly. So if we can shift and change our gift of seeing beauty, how do we do that? I think a, a large portion of that is approaching this with humility, approaching this with a smallness. Um, G.K. Chesterton has this great quote from Orthodoxy, and he says, on the other hand, this mild rationalist modesty does not cleanse the soul with fire and make it clear like crystal. It does not, like a strict and searching humility, make a man as a little child who can sit at the feet of the grass. It does not make him look up and see marvels, for Alice must grow small if she is to be Alice in Wonderland. Thus, it loses both the poetry of being proud and the poetry of being humble. Christianity sought by the same strange expedient to save both of them. Um, that's the end of the quote. And this reminds me, we brought this saying up quite a bit in our podcast, but St. Therese of Lisieux from France, and just this beauty of the little way um, and seeing the beauty in the small things. Or you'll see St. Uh, Francis of Assisi, a beautiful example, um, how he'll see God in nature and see God in the beauty of things um, that are small. And yeah, I love that quote though. Like she must be small if she's to be Alice, Alice of Wonderland. We have to sometimes shrink in, in our growth of seeing beauty as different uh, or being able to grow in our beauty. It does seem like the experience of children, kind of the artistic openness almost every kid, it seems, has. Yes. It's maybe a reflection of this, that they have that sense of wonder at the world and it very naturally gives itself art. And so it's, it's there. It was there in each of us uh, from a very young age and sometimes we've just kind of drowned it out because we didn't take it very seriously, we didn't view it as important. Brene Brown talks about art scars. We all have this this desire to be creative, this desire to express ourselves in art. And sometimes we grew up in a culture where being artistic wasn't something that was seen as worthy or good or worth our time. And so she talks about how really becoming a wholehearted person is just going back to this creative side of ourselves and digging back into um, creating art and being able to appreciate beauty through the creation of that. Yeah. And just the appreciation of it in terms of receiving it. So, you know, I'm a terrible artist, but I've grown in the ability to recognize and drink in uh, beautiful art. But a lot of that, actually, there is an element of study that can go into it where you learn, okay, what is the artist doing here? In the same way that, you know, sometimes you'll watch a, a great movie and then maybe you'll go online and read about the movie and mm -hmm. pick up all these things that you missed and think, oh, wow. Like, that was even more brilliant than I realized. Sixth Sense, that M. Night Shyamalan movie, yes. the first time I saw it, I was, like, really blown away. And then years later, I would read about all these little details I'd missed and think, oh, yeah, that's that's really an impressive movie. And mm -hmm. art can be like that, too. I mean, other forms of art, that, that's a form of art right there. But other forms of art can be like that as well, where there's all these elements and dimensions that you may have, have missed. You know, this classical music 
you know, this melody is going the way it is or the way, you know, like something can be said in it that a trained expert can say, oh, I recognize immediately what's being expressed here, where your ear is still getting acclimated to it, almost like a new language. How can the beautiful lead us to the Lord um, and the brothers Karamazov? Uh, there's this quote, beauty is a battlefield where God and Satan contend with each other for the hearts of men. So how does yeah, beauty lead us to the Lord? In some ways, there's three levels of beauty. The physical beauty, this is like, oh, like you said, oh, I'm, I'm seeing these flock of birds or, oh, if you were to go snorkeling and see this beautiful range of gorgeous fish, this is something that you're interacting with, something in the tangible world that you can see with your with your eyes. The next um, level of beauty is a spiritual level of beauty. This is like, oh, I'm seeing this person interact that I'm interacting with and there's so, they have such a beautiful soul. There's a kindness there. I'm perceiving this as a beauty in their character. And then there's another level of beauty and that's the divine. Um, von Balthasar has a quote that really encompasses this, this concept of these levels of beauty. And he says, if, if a person has read or written only historical critical studies of Goethe's Faust, the work itself, as it is in actuality, will probably never be seen to him, or at best, only before or after undertaking those studies. You know, in order to experience its form, a person must become interior to the work. He must enter into a spell and radiant place, must attain to the state in which alone the work becomes manifest in its being in itself. This holds not only for works of art or beauties of nature, to even greater extent, it holds for the encounter with a human thou. For this reason, most supremely, and at a qualitatively different level, it holds likewise for the encounter with the form of God as it becomes manifest. While we interact with beauty in the physical world, oh, that's a beautiful cloud, wow, what a beautiful flower, all of this beauty is pointing us back to the creator of the beauty. Um, and like we said in this point, like you pointed out with the sixth sense with the movie, when we study it at its depth, at its heart, there's just a greater, greater appreciation for those other levels of beauty when we have an acknowledgement and a knowledge and an intimacy with the creator of beauty himself. Yeah, so I like that he brings up and calls out the kind of historical critical approach as as lacking something beautiful. So for those who don't know, the historical critical approach is one that we especially see in scripture studies. Mm -hmm. And it looks at, okay, what is the historical context in which this is written? Who are the communities to whom it's being written? What are maybe the forms of oratory or dialogue or what's the writing style in which it's written? By whom was it written? By whom was it compiled if it wasn't written all by one author? Those are the kind of questions it's looking to ask. But no, you can know all of that and know nothing about the work. It's the equivalent to knowing like the bibliography page or knowing the author page in the very beginning or the very end without ever actually cracking open the work itself. So you can know, oh, Faust was written by Goethe, but you wouldn't know anything about it itself. Right. And I think that's his point. You have to enter into it and experience that kind of beauty before you can get the deeper meaning. And so I think this is an important point. I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad he called out historical critical uh, because if you read a lot of modern biblical footnotes, they're written in that genre where they're making what are often very speculative guesses about who the original community was or what century it was composed in or by whom or who compiled it or whatever. But it doesn't make you love it anymore. And so in that sense, it's a waste of ink, because if it isn't actually helping you to like really revel in the word, 
in a deeper level, if it isn't growing your love for God, then it's not worth the paper it's printed on, especially if it's printed on a biblical page. And so I think he's using a, a very secular example by saying, look, if you were to approach any work of fiction or any, you know, great work of literature this way, you would recognize this doesn't really help your a real appreciation for it. You know, if you were to take two people, one of whom had only read about the work and one who just like saw every production of Faust ever put on and just devoured the word itself and just read through the text, well, which of them really gets it? It's probably going to be the second one. And so this is the strange place we find ourselves where a lot of scholarship puts an overemphasis on the historical critical side. There are obviously legitimate points it can provide, but that overemphasis can can draw away from the beauty of even the biblical text. So yeah, this is this is a place in which we need to have the openness to God uh, via beauty. I love that you mentioned the three levels of beauty, with the physical or tangible and the spiritual, like the soul, and then divine. Because Plato in the Symposium talks about this on the le- level of loves. And he talks about starting to love another person and then from that coming to these higher and higher loves until you get to the love of God. And this also gets back to the original quotation you brought up from Brothers Karamazov, that this can be a battleground between God and the devil, where the devil wants you to get caught up in tangible worldly beauties, just like he wants you to get caught up in tangible worldly goods. You know, God gives us a beautiful world and a good world, and we abuse it and use things out of due proportion from the human person to food and drink to, you know, you name it. We can corrupt the great goods of the earth and the great beauties. And so we should instead kind of go through them and seek past them. There's an incredible quote about this uh, from, of all people, Edgar Allan Poe, who isn't known for beauty, <laughs> but had a, a profound sense of So here's what he said. He said, uh, we have still a thirst unquenchable to allay which he has not shown us the crystal springs. This thirst belongs to the immortality of man. It is at once a consequence and an indication of his perennial existence. It is the desire of the moth for the star. It is no mere appreciation of the beauty before us, but a wild effort to reach the beauty above Inspired by an ecstatic prescience of the glories beyond the grave, we struggle by multiform combinations among the things and thoughts of time to attain a portion of that loveliness whose very elements perhaps appertain to eternity alone. And thus, when by poetry or when by music, the most entrancing of the poetic moods, we find ourselves melted into tears. We weep then, not as the abbot Gravina supposes through excess of pleasure, but through a certain petulant, impatient sorrow at our inability to grasp now, wholly, here on earth, at once and forever, those divine and rapturous joys of which through the poem or through the music, we attain to but brief, indeterminate glances. I love the line about the moth desiring the stone. Because it really captures, you know, it's not like we as humans are moths that will ever be content with a light bulb. We want the star beyond our reach. And that's the whole 
that's the whole Christian life. That's the whole human life. This desire for a good, a true, and a beautiful beyond what our direct experience and worldly reality would, would lead us to hope for, we still have a longing for more. And that's the whole, I mean, this is a whole beautiful drama um, of the Christian life. And it's, you know, as Edgar Allan Poe recognized, itself is a prescient kind of foretelling of the fact that there is life after death, that this will eventually uh, be satisfied if we just stay open to it and seek after it and continue to, you know, long for the star. I love it. Yeah, I love this impatient sorrow, like this deep desire of our hearts that's desiring for something that cannot be fulfilled. But haven't you experienced some really beautiful moment? Oh, yeah. And you find yourself sort of inexplicably sad mm-hmm. and at once aware also that it's going to pass away. Right. You know, you hear a song for the first time or a poem or you watch a movie and it rocks you to your core. And you know on some level that the 10th time you do it again, it won't have the same effect in quite the same way. Yeah, for me, I remember like staring up at the starry sky in Big Bend National Park in Texas and just like, oh, wow, there's so much more than this. And this is so temporary. And here I am so small. And yeah, that impatient sorrow. I want more than this. I know there's more than this. Yeah, that's beautiful. And to have a quote come from just such a secular source, we've been talking about like how beauty points to did the divine. And now here's this man striving for beauty in his work and his work is pointing towards the divine. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's actually a thing that I was really struck by. That right now we have this problem that even a lot of Catholics and other Christians have lost a sense of the gospel of beauty. Whereas before, like when Edgar Allan Poe was writing in the 19th century, even people who don't strike us as particularly religious were like, well, true, beauty obviously points to God. (laughs) And it isn't like some scientific endeavor has somehow dispelled this. It isn't like scientists said, oh, wait, there's a beauty gene, and it turns out it's evolutionarily evolved because of X, Y, or Z. No, (laughs) beauty is inexplicable scientifically. The notion that you should stand in wonder and awe before the stars there's no travel to fittest benefit to that. Like, if anything, it makes you more susceptible to attacks here below. Right. If you're starry-eyed and wondered, we haven't explained it away. We've just lost so much of the sense. And so this is something I think we need to, to take seriously as Christians and need to really work to recover. Yeah. How does this play out in our lives as Catholics when it comes to participating in like the liturgy of the mass? Like what role does beauty have to, we, we talked about how beauty, the role of beauty in architecture of churches, but what about the liturgy? Yeah. So St. John Chrysostom has a beautiful quote in a work called Apologia Against Those Who Decry Holy Images from the 8th century. And it's quoted in the Catechism in paragraph 1162. Here's what it says. It says, the beauty of the images moves me to contemplation as a meadow delights the eyes and subtly infuses the soul with the glory of God. And then the catechism goes on and says, similarly, contemplation of sacred icons, united with meditation on the word of God and singing of liturgical hymns, enters into the harmony of the signs of celebration, so that the mystery celebrated is imprinted in the heart's memory and is inexpressed in the new life of the faithful. Now, on a very practical level, you've got St. Basil, who we mentioned at the very top of the hour, who said, uh, even when people forget the homilies at church, they'd sing the texts of the Psalms at home and circulate them in the marketplace. Now, I mean, I think you'll find some, (laughs) unfortunately, very shallow version of this today, 
where even people who've been away from the church for 20 years can sing on eagle's wings or can sing, you know, various songs they grew up with because they heard them so many times they were ingrained. If you said, hey, what, uh, what was the homily about when you were 12? <laughs> They're not going to know. Maybe the moral lesson was drilled in enough that it's, it's made a lasting impact, but the particulars they don't know. But the music, it has had such a profound effect on the soul that sometimes you'll hear a song and you'll want to say, okay, what, who wrote that? I need to go home and listen to that again. And there's something very human and very wonderful about that. So I would say on a very practical level, there's this part that it reaches the soul directly. There's also the part that people will memorize it and sing it. You might not even notice it. You'll just be working and you'll be singing these, you know, old tunes from the church. Uh, you know, there's all these stories, for example, in the, the work gangs that they would have doing hard labor in prison gangs. And they'd be singing spirituals. Those are the gospel being proclaimed in a way while they're working. It's an incredible message. It's an incredible way of like just infiltrating your entire life. Uh, but then I think there's another aspect to it as well, specifically liturgical, which is that everything should fit together beautifully to show that in the plan of God, everything fits together beautifully. If you're in a liturgy where it's just all chaos and disorder and ugliness, what kind of God does that preach? Not a beautiful, orderly God. And so I think we, we too quickly dismiss beauty as somehow um, a nice bonus if it happens to happen, but not something we need to take seriously. But if it's really true that there is a, a correlation between the true, the good, and the beautiful, we need to take beauty more seriously than we do. I mean, you wouldn't imagine a mass in which the priest said, you know what, uh, this is a beautiful mass. I don't really care if my homily is true. Or if he says, like, I don't care if the moral message that I have is good. <laughs> but too often, I think all of us can fall into the trap of treating beauty as optional. When beauty is something that we, we ought to see, at mass because like you said it's pointing back to a beautiful lord for a lot of reasons that's not always what we find and it's easy if you have this desire for beauty to start griping and kind of fault finding when mass doesn't look like what we want it to or when mass doesn't look like what the church wants it to and it's important to differentiate that those are two very different things what's important to keep in mind when you're encountering those kinds of situations at mass i have what i call two liturgical rules that i wish everyone would follow <laughs> The first is Jesus is present at the Mass, and so the Mass should be as beautiful as possible. That's, I think I just described why that is. It's a presentation of the Orthodox belief about Jesus, about who God is, to show that this is the summit of beauty. And so if you're a priest, if you're someone who's a liturgist, if you're someone who has any say in how the Mass goes, I want you to pay close attention to rule number one. Jesus is there, the judge of your soul. <laughs> and he's made it very clear that he takes beauty seriously. Uh, Matthew 22, uh, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding banquet and describes the need to come attired in the appropriate wedding garment. Now, there's obviously a level in which that's speaking of a spiritual reality of coming with the right spiritual disposition. But the imagery being used suggests that the liturgy is something we should take seriously as a special occasion. And that if we come 
you know, so even uh, when we're talking beauty, as a normal congregant, there's very little. You're not going to control the organist, Mm-mm. but you can control how you come dressed. You can control how you behave in mass, and you can add or detract from the beauty of the liturgy. It doesn't feel like you can, but uh, trust me, have a conversation with someone else, annoy like five rows of people around you, and they'll have had a much less beautiful experience of the mass. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I've been in churches in Italy in which people just had conversations apparently at full volume. It was oh no, un- unbelievable uh, kind of disrespect for the liturgy going on. It only happened once or twice that like that bad, but mm. still like it's a reminder that each of us can in our own small way contribute to the beauty of the mass. And so to that end, we should be very mindful of rule number one: Jesus is present, and we want to make it as beautiful as possible. We want to bring our wedding garment in whatever way. But rule number two is if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. I'm not going to be so obsessed with liturgical finery or, you know, the details or the beauty or whatever on those things that I don't have any control over that I'm going to like stay away from mass. I've, you know, I've talked with people who will refuse to go to mass because they don't like how the mass is celebrated in their area. They say it's not respectful, that it's it's distracting, et cetera. And all of that, I trust, is probably true on at least some level. But letting the imperfections of how we're celebrating the mass keep you from going to mass is insane. And the idea that Jesus would be saying, hey, I'm going to be at mass. I don't want you to show up because the organist is really off key. And so obviously the impulse not to go to mass there isn't coming from him. So who's it coming from? And so the rule number two is basically go to Jesus, even if uh, the liturgy surrounding Jesus is hurting more than helping sometimes in the way that it's carried out. In all of this, I mean, I'm really just in those two liturgical rules I wish everyone would follow, kind of just applying the serenity prayer, you know, to accept the things you can't change and the courage to change the things you can and knowing the difference. If we approach the liturgy that way, I think we would all be a lot better off. When it comes to accepting things we can't change, changing the things we can, how do we as Catholics use beauty to evangelize to others? We talk a lot about inviting other people into a friendship with the Lord. What role does beauty play in that evangelization process? I think there's a lot of things that could be said here. There's a great quote from Cardinal Ratzinger that he gave uh, right before he became, well, shortly before he became Pope Benedict. This was actually back in 2002. Mm -hmm. He's at the Rimini Conference in Italy, uh, which is the big annual conference for the communion and liberation movement. And if you're not familiar with them, they are obsessed with beauty and they use beauty more effectively than than do most uh, movements within the church, I think. They take it very seriously. And so he's speaking to them on that subject. And he says, to admire the icons and the great masterpieces of Christian art in general leads us on an inner way, a way of overcoming ourselves. Thus, in this purification of vision, that is a purification of the heart, it reveals the beautiful to us, or at least a ray of it. In this way, we are brought into contact with the power of the truth. I've often affirmed my conviction that the true apology of Christian faith The most convincing demonstration of its truth against every denial are the saints and the beauty that the faith has generated. Today, for faith to grow, we must lead ourselves and the persons we meet 
to encounter the saints and to enter into contact with the beautiful. And so this is the thing that I think we're, we're so often missing, is that we live in an age of moral relativism that tries to say there's no real truth and tries to say there's no real goodness. And we've been saying for years, there's no real beauty, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But people will still recognize just overpowering beauty. I was just reading today, a guy was in an Uber and he was with a kind of a fallen away Catholic who'd never apparently been very seriously Catholic. And he put on Gregorian chant and the driver was just like, this is beautiful. What is this? Mm. That notion that beauty can sometimes get you in places uh, in which a, a logical argument for the proof of God might not. Someone close to me had a, an experience very much like this. He was studying classical music and he'd been listening to electronic dance music. It was very disordered, etc. Very much kind of a party scene going all down these wrong avenues. Discovered classical music and was listening to, uh, I think it was Bach's Passion of St. Matthew. And he was moved to tears. Mm-hmm. And then he picked up the Gospel of St. Matthew to read the Passion so he could better understand what Bach was saying. And <laughs> that's the kind of power that beauty can have. And not everyone is going to be at a place where they can understand the beauty of classical music. I totally get that. But things like the beauty of Mother Teresa or the beauty of various saints, like there are different ways beauty expresses itself and people can see the beautiful and say, ah, I want that. Because here's the thing. The truth can feel very stifling and goodness can feel very stifling. Uh, So if the truth is you shouldn't be living with your boyfriend and goodness is you should really be helping out this, this homeless person, even though you don't feel like it, that can feel very burdensome. But beauty doesn't really have a feeling of burden associated with it. And so it's true that the truth will set you free. And goodness is very much a part of that. But beauty can be very invitational uh, and often doesn't have the same baggage truth and goodness do. Mm -hmm. You know, so if I could, I'd like to uh, close this episode by going back to Cardinal Ratzinger from the talk that he gave at that Rimini conference. There's that great Dostoevsky line, only beauty will save the world. And he wants us to understand it in a way that makes it uh, richer and in the way that Dostoevsky originally intended. He says, people usually forget that Dostoevsky is referring here to the redeeming beauty of Christ. We must learn to see him if we know him, not only in words, but if we are struck by the arrow of his paradoxical beauty, then we will truly know him. And know him not only because we have heard others speak about him. Then we, will, we, then we will have found the beauty of truth, of the truth that redeems. Nothing can bring us into close contact with the beauty of Christ himself, other than the world of beauty created by faith and light that shines out from the faces of the saints, through whom his own light becomes visible. So let's close now with a prayer. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, as now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.